and welcome to Medicine in the Kitchen, where we empower you with simple solutions to everyday health concerns. Welcome back to Medicine in the Kitchen, episode 30. Once again, I'm Hesul. And I'm Felicia, and we're your guides to empowered health. Today we're going to have a real, like, girl talk. I encourage your listeners without female reproductive organs to stay and learn a bit more about what those who do have these organs feel and experience. And we're super lucky to have Dr. Antoinette from the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast as our guest today and a specialist in menstrual health. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So you are definitely the person I thought of when we decided we wanted to talk about periods because you talk about them all the time and everything related and, and in between. So before we get into it, do you want to give a little intro about yourself and what you do and, and all of that? Yeah, absolutely. And yep, you guys got it right. Periods and menstrual cycle health is one of my passions and what I love talking about. So thanks so much for having me on today's episode. Um, a bit about me, I call myself a hormone health enthusiast and I help women transition from hormone havoc to hormone heaven. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, right. Um, I'm trained as a naturopathic doctor and fertility awareness educator. But what I'm most passionate about is empowering women to use and learn how to use their uh, menstrual cycles as their very own superpower. So we'll get into more about that and what that means. But I feel like it's extremely important for women to understand how to really harness that menstrual cycle power and how to use it to their advantage. Yeah, I love that because I feel like a lot of people don't even realize how much it can be used. And I love that you call it a power because as I was doing some research, I looked at a few different ways of how periods are viewed all around the world. And most of it is rather negative. There are very few cultures that see it as something powerful and as a blessing. And I'm like, it should be considered that. It shouldn't be something that we are so ashamed about. Mm-hmm, totally, totally. And that's a whole conversation in itself. Even like looking at places in the world where, you know, there's still tax on menstrual products and uh, there's like job losses and women are really experiencing a lot of hardships as a result of something that's biologically normal. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it's a whole conversation in itself and, and very much unfortunate when you think about some other countries. So I definitely feel lucky to be to be living where I do. But I think with that, there are still, believe it or not, some stigmas that need to be corrected. Very true. But at least we're in a part of the world where it's not seen too badly. And we can empower other women to start changing their mindset and empower men as well to be like, you know, it's normal, it's going to happen. You kind of get used to it. And this is how it happens, right? Mm hmm. Totally. I always think, imagine if men had periods and menstrual cycles, like what would our world be? <laughs> Maybe a bit more considered for one another. We're like, oh no, they're in pain. Here, I have something for you. <laughs> uh, I think it would definitely be, you know, very, a very different uh, society. And for sure women, you know, we, it's, it's something that it it affects us in so many different ways, positive and negative. And I always say that women, you know, yes, our cycles are a superpower, but it also gives us strength. I feel like strength to like have this 
very important thing about us that allows us to create life, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're the reason society continues. So why don't we look at it that way? Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, I like that too. And when we were looking at like answering what periods, what they are and stuff, it reminded me way back when like, I don't remember, there was this joke on the internet trying to explain periods to men. It's like, uterus wants baby, girl doesn't have baby, uterus wants revenge. I'm like, ooh, we really see it that way. We need to change our mindset. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and, and on that note, do we want to talk a little bit about what periods are and, and why we have periods? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So a period is part of a woman's menstrual cycle, and um, it marks the beginning of her cycle, which are the days when she bleeds. So this could any- be anywhere from five to seven days. And really that is the phase of the cycle where the lining is shutting completely. And then after that happens, the body gets ready to thicken the lining back up again. And then ovulation happens. And then after ovulation, it's about whether pregnancy is desired or not desired. It's going to be a successful implantation or the lining then begins to disintegrate, which starts your next cycle all over again. So really our bodies are designed to reproduce is what a lot of people that's actually what a lot of brings people to learning about their menstrual cycles are, you know, they're trying to get pregnant and they're like, oh, I have to understand what my menstrual cycle is. But I would actually encourage people to take it beyond that, to look at it as, you know, our cycles overall. So whatever the full length may be for some women, it's, you know, it can be 25 to 35 days would be considered normal. But your cycle overall really acts as your fifth vital sign. And what that means is that you're going to learn information, not just about your reproductive health, but about your overall health through what you experience during your cycles. So the period is the bleeding aspect of it, but like the cycle overall is what we want to be looking at and what we want to be tracking and monitoring and, and being in tune with our bodies and knowing what are the shifts happening within that cycle. I like how you mentioned all that because I would have never really thought about it that way. I'm usually, you know, you know, just worried about bleeding everywhere and be like, oh, no, I have to be cautious of it. And as you're mentioning it, it brought back a thought of when I used to go to this iridologist once and he, first of all, it was male. And he said that women are not so ha- supposed to have PMS. They're not supposed to know when their periods are coming and all these things. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what do you mean I'm not supposed to know when my period is coming? My period it would work like clockwork. That would be awesome. I would, you know, put a pad on or something and not be worried about bleeding all over the place. But what about if I'm stressed or something and I don't feel it coming and I'm just sitting down somewhere and boom, I stained the whole spot. Like, what do you mean I'm not supposed to feel anything? You know, I'm freaking out the entire time. Yeah, I think that's where you get I mean, it's the same thing in obstetrics and gynecology and in the fertility space where you have, you know, male doctors that I don't, they understand menstrual cycles from the textbook, but not from like the feminine female aspect of it, which again is, is something, is something, oh, we can probably do a whole episode on that, but you need to experience um, it to understand that kind of thing. Yeah. And I hear this from a lot of women. Like I hear it from my patients and clients who are like, oh yeah, of course, it's like a male doctor. And don't get me wrong. I've had some fantastic male OBGYNs that I've been blown away by how amazing they are. So I don't want to like generalize all male physicians, but I think there is, there is for sure that, that aspect to it. And you mentioned something else about PMS. Like 
what I always say is just because period pain is common, it doesn't mean it's normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we can just fall, I think, as women into this trap of like, oh, I'm on my period. I'm supposed to feel sluggish and gross and in pain and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I think like because our periods and our cycles are such important like looking glasses into our overall health, I think it's it's might be a wake up call that there's more investigative work that needs to be done, and maybe potentially like figuring out why they're they're very painful for you and why you're experiencing PMS. Yeah, and Do I you- think that's such an important point because even like you see advertisements for different sort of period pain medications, and it's it normalizes the period pain so much that it's like like people are shocked when you're when you tell them, no, you're, you don't need to have pain during your period. It's like, I thought that was normal. So I think that's such an important point to bring up that like periods don't have to be painful. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, do you mind listing a few of the most common like PMS symptoms that you guys have seen in practice and what are they signs and symptoms of, or like how you can modify certain lifestyles so you don't experience those? Yeah. So, um, I like to break them into categories. So you've got, you have like your anxiety category, which is the most common. And this is where women will get emotional, get mental health symptoms, like right before their period. Um, and then you have like the category where it's like aches and pains. Um, and then you have like water fluid retention. So this is women who gets headaches and swelling. Those are a little less common. Um, there's a whole category about cravings. And so this is the women who, you know, they get really intense sugar or salty cravings um, during their PMS. And like, of course, all of the sim- there's so many symptoms associated with PMS, but they can kind of be narrowed down into each one of those categories. And I would say to differentiate or to classify your PMS is an important first step because once you once you know, okay, so which category do I fit in? Where do the predominantly do my PMS symptoms lie? And importantly is when we're talking about, you know, quote, diagnosing a PMS condition or category, you want to ask yourself, are these symptoms happening the week before your period or before you bleed? And then are they resolved at day one of bleeding? That is like diagnostically what is considered PMS. Um, So that's important to keep in mind. And then once you know like which category you fall in, that's kind of where you get to look at the cycle and say, okay, like, do we see some imbalances in your estrogen and progesterone levels? Is there a deficiency in any vitamin? And some of of the more common ones are, you know, your magnesium and your B vitamins, like you are, you have a deficiency or taking those will optimize um, how you feel. Yeah. So those would be like some of the more common, common ones. That's good to know. And I like it. Is there somewhere like a link to a webpage or an article that could provide more information so that people can like start looking at it and be like, yeah, I fall under these categories. Maybe I can bring it up to my naturopath or my doctor or a holistic nutritionist and see how we can alter my diet or lifestyle so I can get those nutrients and not feel these sort of symptoms. Yeah. um, I don't have a reference specifically, but I, I did write a post about it on my on my Instagram page, which listeners are welcome to check that out and, and get more information. Yeah. And you have tons of great information on your Instagram page about all things period related. Thank you. I did give it a quick glance and I was like, Ooh, I enjoyed this. I'm going to share it with my sister. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks. I appreciate that. Sharing is caring when it comes to IG. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I think it's great that you you highlighted that PMS is kind of trying to show you something, like whether there's a deficiency or or maybe there's a lifestyle factor that needs changing. And it again, going back to like the power of the menstrual cycle, it's such an empowered way to look at it by just viewing it as, okay, what's my body trying to tell me instead of, oh, I don't feel well, this sucks, my period's terrible. It's it's a different way of looking at it. And in the long run, will actually benefit your health overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Your period's telling you something. Um, I've often told clients that it's like, it's kind of like your own diagnostic tool in a way to get a sense of what's going on in your body. So, you know, blood tests, as much as they're fantastic at diagnosing and understanding certain conditions, sometimes I find that when we're looking at hormones, there can be a little bit of a gap there because your blood test is looking at one snapshot, a specific day and a specific time. Whereas if you are, you know, tracking your cycle and being really in tune with your body and the signs and symptoms, then you will know more information about your hormonal patterns than you could get from a blood test, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Super cool. And how I, do you like do that? Sorry, go on, Felicia. Yeah, no, I, I want to hear that too. How do you do that? Yeah. So what uh, a big part of, of my practice and what I help women with is learning fertility awareness method. So fertility awareness method is a system where you use the biomarkers from your body. And those biomarkers include uh, cervical mucus, include basal body temperature, include cervix position, and the signs and symptoms associated with each day of your, of your cycle. So those signs and symptoms from your body and the biomarkers help you to pinpoint when is your fertile window, when does ovulation happen, and then a side thing you can also learn from those biomark- tracking those biomarkers is you can learn the ebbs and flows of your hormone patterns and then know, okay, like an example is once ovulation's happened and your temperature, you want it to stay elevated. And so if that post-ovulatory temperature starts to dip up and down, then that is a sign from your body that like your progesterone levels may be fluctuating up and down because progesterone's role is directly correlated with body temperature. And it allows you to keep like a higher value for your post-ovulatory temperatures. So that will be an example. I think that's so cool. I remember learning about basal body temperature and how progesterone affects it and how it fluctuates throughout the month and then actually recording it myself. And it's so cool that your body has, like it's just another sign of that cycle. And it's, and it's, I found it fascinating that you can actually track your body temperature yourself and, and figure out what's going on with your cycle. Yep, another super empowered thing about, about charting and about using the fertility awareness method, I think anyways. Mm-hmm. So I'm loving this. Sorry, go on, sorry. No, you you go first. I feel like you've been trying to get something in for a bit. It's okay. I was just like I didn't learn any of this, so this sounds like super interesting to me. And I totally, I mean, if you don't mind, I would love a lot more detail about it. But one of my main questions is like, how do you check your cervix? Mm, yeah, good question. Well, I want to address the other point too about how, like, you know, you said you never learned it. 
And that is a big thing that I'm noticing as well. Like we teach women very briefly, I think in, in high school, like maybe it's grade 10 or grade 11 about the menstrual cycle. And depending which school you went to, you might have learned absolutely nothing given that there was like a Catholic or religious underlying tone to the education. Um, but that's, but then women are like, like I hear this all the time. Oh, I wish I learned this earlier. Or like, why didn't I learn this when I first started cycling? So a big part of my mission is to get the word out. And I mean, I love when I see in my schedule, you know, the 17 year old who just got her period and has all these questions. I mean, it's fantastic. And I, I wish schools would teach it in a, maybe in a more comprehensive way and, and less, potentially less bias. Um, but that's again, a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I got sidetracked with your actual question. <laughs> I it's okay. I was just like, you know, I would love to learn more about it. Like if you could give us more details so that okay. our listeners could start trying it. And my other question was about cervix, how, like how you can tell the position and all these things. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, um, so the very like easiest, the easiest place to start is to, you know, get a calendar, get a journal and every day start tracking your cervical mucus. So this is like everything from what's the color, what's the consistency, how often do you experience it? What's, uh, what's the change? Like just recording everything you can about cervical mucus and every time you use the washroom, like making sure that you're checking for it. I'm making it very simple, but a lot of it for women is just getting into the habit, making it part of their routine and, and checking regularly. And then basal white temperature, like you can really just grab any, any BBT thermometer. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Uh, there's lots of fancy femtech devices on the market that women sometimes get like swoon in, into purchasing, but you don't need anything fancy. A regular thermometer will work. And it's about taking your temperature first thing in the morning uh, before you get out of bed. And there's two ways you can do it. You can do it oral or you can do it under your arm. The key with having it oral is it's better to let the thermometer kind of warm up. So you put it under your tongue for about eight minutes. And then usually BBT thermometers are about two to three minutes before they beep. So then turn it on. That way your thermometer has warmed up and you're getting a more accurate temperature, true basal body temperature. And it's the same thing with, with under your arm. You want to keep it under there for 10 minutes before you track the temperature and cervix position. So cervix position can take a little bit of getting used to. The easiest way to do it is to kind of stand leaning over, like you can do it in your bathroom over your toilet. You could put one leg up. It's going to sound really obvious, but just making sure your fingernails are short and that your fingers are clean. You don't want to introduce any like foreign bacteria up there. I mean, the vagina is very cleanly and cleansing. So I, it's not a big issue, but I mean, common sense, um, mm-hmm. because I have definitely injured my cervix from my nails being a little bit too long. So I speak from personal experience on that one because your cervix is super tender. Like there's a lot of like, there's nerve endings there. So you want to be gentle. And what you're going to do is you're going to feel for that cervical os, which is the opening. So your cervix is the opening into your uterus. Usually it's going to be, depending where you are in your cycle, it's going to move. 
So around ovulation, your cervix is going to be more anterior and that os is going to be more open. So what you're doing is you're doing, you're feeling for that opening and you're feeling for that, you know, is it more anterior? Is it, is it, does it more forward? Is it more back? Is it easier or harder to feel? Like, is that os open? And you're going to monitor and track those, what you, what you notice, because around ovulation, it should be forward and more open which makes sense, right? Ovulation's waiting for sperm. So that would be optimal position for that. Um, so that's how you do that. And then when I talk about tracking signs and symptoms, I'm talking about, you know, like some women will experience middle schmerz, which is ovulation pain. So it's this like little jab that you'll feel in your lower abdomen around ovulation. Or some women might get ovulatory spotting. Some women may notice that their libido is like through the roof around ovulation. Some women may notice that they get headaches right before their period or that they have breast tenderness or, or whatever it is. Like you want to track everything that you feel essentially every day of your cycle. And there, are, you know, I think the easiest way to do that is to use, just use a paper calendar and track things that way. I don't know if you guys want me to get into like apps and, and all of that, because that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I mean, a few apps wouldn't hurt. I know a lot of people are now into the whole app thing instead of doing a paper and pen. So why not? Yeah. So I, I caution with using, using an app when it comes to fertility awareness method. And here's why the apps are preset with an algorithm. So that algorithm is based on the calendar, right? So it'll say, okay, women are roughly ovulating between cycle day 10 and 14. So when you put, okay, my period started on this day, it's going to calculate your fertile window for you. And it'll say, you know, usually apps will be like a pink color or like a purple color around that fertile window. And if you were using fertility awareness method for birth control or even to plan a pregnancy, you would look at that and you'd be like, oh, okay, that's, those are the days I have to abstain or like, those are the days for intercourse. But the problem with that is the app doesn't actually know your body and the signs and symptoms your body is telling you, whereas it could have that totally off because women don't usually ovulate on the same day every single month. There is some variability. And a lot of that is because there's lots of lifestyle factors that can affect when a woman ovulates. So that's important to keep in mind. But what apps I do like, um, and this one's like relatively new, uh, it's called Read Your Body. And why I love this app so much is because it allows you to fully customize everything. It doesn't use like a preset algorithm, so it won't be calculating your, your fertile window for you. Um, and it lets you put in all of your... So if you're someone who gets breast tenderness pretty regularly, you might write that as a category and then you could just like check it off when you experience it. And it also is an app that works well with um, if someone's learning the fertility awareness method from an educator, because it has certain um, stamps, which you would learn about depending on the method that you chose to, you chose to learn. So yeah, I, that app is probably my favorite. It's one that I use personally. I use with a lot of clients and why is because it's totally customizable and you can track, you can track whatever you experience right on there. I like it. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning different like lifestyle and things that affect your ovulation. And I was wondering if you can give us a few things that affect both ovulation and periods and things like that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so the big part is, so your luteal phase, which is the phase from right after ovulation till the start of your next period. So the second half of your cycle, those days are going to be consistent for the most part. 
actually, no, they are going to be consistent. So once you identify how long your luteal phase is, you will kind of like, that's important information because when you go back to review your chart, you'll be able to be like, okay, no, that was right. I actually did ovulate on that day because my luteal phase was, you know, 13 days or whatever. And then you have the follicular phase of your cycle, which is from the first day of your period until ovulation. And that's the phase of the cycle that has the most variability given that it's affected by lifestyle factors. And some of the more common lifestyle factors, you have stress is a really big one. And when we think about the physiology behind stress in the body, when the body is under any type of stress, really, like it, there's so much variability in the term stress and what that looks like, but your body's not thinking it's time to ovulate potentially to make a baby. It's like, no, I have to protect my, my energy and my resources to deal with a stressor. So that's a big one. Uh, the other thing is illness. I guess you can argue that illness is a stressor for the body as well, but if you're sick or you have a cold or whatever, that could also delay when ovulation is happening. And then of course, if you have any underlying hormonal conditions, so a common one is PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, that can affect the timing of ovulation and when you ovulate. Um, Hypothyroidism can affect when you ovulate. Other lifestyle things, you know, if you don't sleep very well at nighttime, uh, that could play a role. If you don't eat, you know, aren't eating very well, that can also affect when ovulation happens. Alcohol consumption too can, uh, can affect um, the day of ovulation. So yeah, those are some of the more common ones. It's good to know. And I think that's usually one of the first things we tell clients that they need to fix when they're having a lot of menstrual problems is usually, you know, exercise better, sleep well, eat healthier things, especially leafy greens because of the magnesium, right? Mm-hmm. Or iron rich foods. And well, it's good to know that it makes sense. You know, we mm-hmm. have extra details. Yeah, no, for sure. Like the one thing, if I could say, is going to have the most effect on your cycles, it's lowering inflammation. And I'm not talking about inflammation like when you scrape your leg and it's like red and hot and swollen. I'm not talking about that inflammation. I'm talking about systemic inflammation that is a result of just life. And I think everybody has it. You know, we don't always get to control 100% the source of where our food's coming from, um, the air that we you know, that we breathe or what we're exposed to in terms of products, you know, we can only do our best there, but that's really like where I start when we're talking about hormones. And if we were to talk systems, that starts in the gut because, Mm -hmm. you know, that is 70% of your immune system. And if you think about it, the whole GI tract from your mouth down to your rectum is the only part of your body that's really fully exposed to the outside environment. So it's a crucial system and it's really where we start when we're talking about hormone health. True. And a lot of us do focus on that. And I remember hearing people always be like, I don't understand why they focus so much on the gut. I didn't go there for your gut. I was like, well, you kind of do. It fixes a lot of issues. It's the core, right? It's really the root of the root of everything essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the one thing that was hammered to us like in naturopathic school was just that important role of gut health. You know, I even, I had done a pediatric residency when I was in naturopathic school. And one of the things I remember learning is, you know, right from in utero, like that's when your gut begins to develop. And those beginning years are crucial. So it's a lot around like awareness for, for moms on like 
how important it is to have good gut health for your kids because it really sets them up for, you know, their microbiome moving forward. Yeah. And especially like breastfeeding and how that plays a huge role in that as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think, I think that kind of points to why diet and food is so important for your period as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably the most, the most important thing. Like I, I always say, you know, you can, you can take all the supplements in the world, but if you eat like garbage and you don't, you're not mindful about the foods you put in your body, like it's kind of money wasted when it comes to taking those supplements in a way. I agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find that when people start like adding just supplements and supplements, I'm like, you are literally just band-aiding everything. Mm-hmm. You're not yeah, fixing and then the you're, core thing. And your organ, right? Like the liver, you know, we, we sometimes think, oh, it's a supplement. It's natural. It doesn't affect the liver like a drug does. But really, actually, that's not true. And your supplements still have to be broken down by your body. They still have to be absorbed in your gut. The liver does play a role. Like those organs are still being stressed to a certain extent. And you just want to make sure that there's enough support from the body through food, through rest and water and to make sure that you can still process like those, those supplements. I know for myself, if I, I have, if my gut is off, I will feel nauseous right away when I take a supplement. And to me, like I kind of have to stop taking that supplement for a bit and I have to like address my gut issues and I've got to cut some foods out that I shouldn't have been eating. And then I'm able to take that supplement again. And it's just such a, it creates um, like body intuition for myself of like when I know a supplement's right for me or or when it's not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just takes a little bit to reset your whole system, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And speaking of like body intuition, uh, sort of related, and it's something that like I find super cool that I, I know you've talked about before, Antoinette, is um, like using your cycle and to kind of guide how you set up your day, if that makes sense, in terms of like where you are in your cycle and like maybe during the ovulatory phase you're more creative or or do you kind of know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Yeah. Like the energy, the energy fluctuations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the optimized woman is a book. The author is Miranda and I really should, (laughs) I really should know the book really well because I loved this book and it totally opened up my eyes to a lot of, a lot of this information about your cycles that I didn't, that I didn't know before. But yeah, it's basically talking about, you know, women, particularly career women, we're like expected to like go, go hard every single day of the cycle. You know, if you're working in an environment with men, you're often like held right up to them. You're like, oh, men have this like, just like drive that allows them to like achieve all these things. And, and women put a lot of pressure on themselves to match that. But actually this, this book um, encourages women to actually take a step back and look at each week of her cycle and see like what her energy is doing. So like, yes, a woman might not be able to work hard every single day for her entire cycle, but there's going to be that week. And for most women, it's right before ovulation when estrogen is the, is the highest where you're able to get so much work done. Like it's like task oriented, you're focused, you're just able to like check off all those things on your to-do list. So you might get more done in that week than like a whole cycle which is amazing, right? It allows women to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use my cycle as my superpower. And I'm going to plan that when I need to do those type of tasks, that's when I'm going to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And then Felicia, you said being creative. So being creative is like towards the end, like in the luteal phase, because if you think about it, like that's when the body is like, I'm, I'm planning for a pregnancy. I'm creating an embryo. Like I'm implanting like all of those crucial pregnancy signs, which is essentially the body creating stuff. I find that the creative energy really peaks um, just after ovulation in, in that window. And then you need to like incorporate rest and rejuvenation. And a lot of that is just a couple days before your period and when you're bleeding. Like that's really when your body's like, okay, I need to like, I need to pump up my self-care. I need to rest. I need to, you know, when it comes to exercise, exercise, I might be choosing restorative yoga, something that's a, that is a bit more gentle, but also restorative. So yeah, those are those are the key the key pieces. If you- I was just gonna say, yeah, I find I find this optimizing your cycle, and like I think I've seen it also described as hacking your cycle. I find that so so cool because I know growing up for me, like I was like, oh, my period, like I can't get anything done. It's like this pain, um, and it's like once you kind of understand it and work with it. It's actually, like you said, your superpower. It's sometimes also referred to as cycle syncing. And you can incorporate exercise as well into that and help to optimize your overall health. Yeah. Whole new 2020, 21 like resolution is like, I'm going to start doing this. But you mentioned cycle syncing. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the actual cycle syncing of like, you know, you being with a bunch of girls and sharing a dorm or whatever, and suddenly your periods line? Because I know that I've had similar experience with some friends and I know my sister had one and she was like, oh my God, this is real. So what is your point of view on that? Is it real? Is it not real? Yeah, I, I think it actually goes to like the moon cycles. And I would actually say it's like the energy of the moon with those women together that that is what drives some of that. And I mean, I've definitely experienced it personally. It does take, you know, living with someone for a long period of time, but usually like also you're, you have like-minded friends, right? So everyone's kind of on that same like energy wave when we're talking about moon cycles. I don't know if moon cycles is something that you want me to get into, but. um, I would love to get into it. Sure, (laughs) yeah. I mean, the only thing I know about this is like women, their periods align, men, their pooping times align. That's fine. Please. Go on to the moon cycle. Oh, I need to hear more about the the pooping times because that is new to me. <laughs> I don't know all the full details, but it's supposed to be like all pheromones as from what I've heard. Okay. I have yet to like fully look into it. Um, I remember one of our professors mentioned that, you know, there's not a lot of proof yet, but women's cycles tend to align because of estrogen progesterone and being constantly together. And while men, it tends to be enough to test around that they all tend to like fight for the bathroom at the same time of the day. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So when we're talking about the moon cycles, uh, I would say the most common is the cycle where a woman will will start her cycle. So cycle day one will be in line with the new moon and then ovulation will be in line with the full moon. And that's like, I would say the more common, if you read about it, it'll say that that's considered, you know, the most optimal for fertility. And then there's another cycle, which is like the red moon cycle, where women will start their cycle on the full moon and they will ovulate on the new moon. Now, this type of cycle is 
known to be more common in healers and women who like work in a therapeutic role. So ironically enough, this is the cycle that I've been aligned to in the last, I would say year, year and a half. It's been pretty bang on and it totally matches like where I am in my life and, and what, you know, what my energies are. But then I've also had, you know, where I'm more in line, the other moon cycle, that's like more of like the fertile one. So it's just all really interesting. And I think it's cool to to be in sync that way and yeah just to be in sync that way mm-hmm. okay i yeah. thought it was only me that enjoyed you know seeing my theater line with like a full when i was like Woo-hoo! no 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 yeah that was another thing when i when i actually started paying attention uh and learned about that i was like wow like it just it's again so empowering to be connected to nature in that way in that the cycle that's kind of driving you through the month and is responsible for you being able to create new life and and all that is linked up with the moon cycle and it's just yeah it's really powerful Mm -hmm. and so far everything we've talked about is what would be considered more of a normal or average cycle what are some of the um more abnormal and i'm saying both of these with quotation marks that nobody can see yeah so when we're talking about abnormalities you know some of the more common ones that jump out is heavy menstrual bleeding so if you are soaking through you know a heavy pad or tampon or filling a menstrual cup every hour then that would be considered an abnormal parameter and then we talked about pain pain is not normal mid-cycle spotting it could uh, not be normal depending like what else is going on. An abundance of cervical mucus. So if you're someone that is just always wet, feels like you're always have it, you always have a lot of mucus, that is not normal. Um, PMS, we talked about not being normal. Yeah, I would say those are the more common ones. What about the women who like don't have a period for like three months or things like that? Mm. Oh, yes. Well, then there's like isolated specific situations Um, so, you know, post pill amenorrhea is one that I work with quite a bit. And and this is women who have come off birth control and they haven't gotten a period yet. Their period hasn't come back yet. Um, and amenorrhea being no period. And why this is happening is because when women are on hormonal birth control, they're taking synthetic hormones that are completely shutting off the communication between their brain and their reproductive organs. So it's kind of like, no, no conversation, no, nothing going on there. Um, And then, you know, there's a certain degree of inflammation that is occurring in the body after, after hormonal contraceptives. And these all play a role in, you know, not having your period come back. And this is, of course, like I'm talking about primary amenorrhea, like there's other, some other, you know, secondary amenorrhea causes that can be a bit more serious. But And another example of women who can maybe lose their period uh, for a number of months is if they have PCOS, because PCOS is a condition that that affects ovulation. And so if you're, so what the body does in those cases is the follicle is like, keeps growing, but it never gets, or multiple follicles grow, but it never gets the point of being like the big follicle that's going to allow the egg to release. So that's usually the picture of an anovulatory. So like that means a cycle that's not ovulating. If you're not ovulating, you're not going to, you're not going to get your period because you don't have the adequate hormonal fluctuations that are responsible for, for that. Is it the same as those women who are still like fertile, but they just don't get their menstruation? I would say that 
there are certain situations where where a woman might be fertile but not have her period yet. So an example of that is like let's say she's just experienced a miscarriage or a loss, you know, before her first period comes, she may ovulate before the first bleed is. Another example would be postpartum women. So, you know, they're waiting for their period to come, but they may actually ovulate before they get their first period. So in those circumstances, I would say that is where you could still be fertile, but you don't have your period. But in generally, like if you're not getting your period, I would definitely say that you're not fertile. You Mm -hmm. want to. And one of the best biomarkers for your fertility is cervical mucus. So if you're not getting a period, but you're like getting cervical mucus, that is like you're on the right track. Your body is trying because cervical mucus production is directly correlated with estrogen. And we need estrogen to spike just before ovulation, which is why like cervical mucus is usually highest right before ovulation. So yeah. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, I was going to say you also talked about contraceptives, um, like birth control. And I I think it's important to kind of highlight, I mean, if you're up for talking about your experience with people coming off of birth control, because I don't think it's so well explained when they're prescribed birth control for for various things. I mean, there's contraception, of course, but I know sometimes people will take birth control to try and regulate their periods. And I, I was just wondering if you could speak a bit to the after effects if you're wanting to get pregnant after that. Yes, please. And also like there are people who take uh, birth control just to control their acne and different things like that or the different types of birth control. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this is an area that I, that I talk a lot about and I help a lot of women in, I would say. So it is probably 70 to 80% of women who are actually on hormonal contraceptive endocrine disruptor of some kind for reasons other than contraception. So that's pretty huge. Um, I think we've come a long way as a culture and as a society. In my training, I learned a lot about birth control and what it did for women back you know, in the 60s when it was just newly coming out. It, it gave women hope for their careers and allowed them to explore different opportunities, which was fantastic. It was, it was great. But I think we've taken that totally to the other end of the extremes right now. And we've taken away women's, their ability to have informed consent. And women are not being told the full story when they're prescribed these, these endocrine disruptors. They're not being told like, you could experience this on it. This could be a side effect. This isn't normal. Come off. This is what could happen. Like This information is not widely talked about. And it really, really makes me angry. Um, and one of the myths that I hear too, too often is that birth control is helping to regulate their periods. And that is something that is completely inaccurate because what it's doing is it's shutting off your hormones completely. There's no regulation happening. And like it leads to this myth that women believe that they absolutely need to be on it, that it's the treatment. It's going to fix all of their issues. And I say short term, it, it probably will. Like, yes, women are put on birth control to control their acne and it it works. It makes their acne go away. Like birth control will lower your androgen levels. And that's the hormone that's responsible for acne in a, in a lot of hormonal cases. But then what happens is when you come off of it, chances are you're going to get acne even worse than when you first 
experienced it and were put on on it initially. Plus, you might get some other things that you didn't notice that you didn't have before. And I know there is also a huge myth out there that that you know birth control somehow makes it easier for women to get pregnant. And I I think this is missing the full picture and the full understanding. I don't think you could make that blanket statement and say that every single woman falls under that category. So I have seen cases where, you know, women will work with a fertility clinic and let's say they have a condition such as PCOS that's driven by high levels of androgens. And androgens are the hormones that if you are producing a lot of them, you are likely not ovulating. That interferes directly with ovulation. And so women will be put on birth control short term to lower those androgens. And then when they come off, they get pregnant really easily. They get pregnant easily. So that is like, I would say one scenario where it could potentially be a benefit, but we're not talking about every single woman. We're not going around saying every single woman that goes on birth control is going to be easier or like stay on it until you're ready to conceive. Because the reality is, is that it takes time when you come off of birth control to regulate your cycles, to get your period back. Because I teach charting, I often see cycles appear worse before they get better. You know, it's like so much mucus, it's temperatures all over the place. And that's because your body's trying to, you're trying to reestablish that communication and that takes time. And when I say time, I mean like six to 12 months. So if you're someone who's thinking about having a baby within that time frame, you, I think, want to be a, you know, be ahead of the curve and you want to come off, help detox your body, learn fertility awareness method. And then that way you're ready to go. Because if you come off and you notice like, okay, I'm not getting pregnant. It's been like two, three months. Those are often the people who end up at the fertility clinic because they're like, my, something's not working. At, like I'm not getting pregnant. But uh, a lot of it is because you didn't give your body time to heal and get back to baseline. And what are your thoughts on the shot? Because I know I, I'm on the like, you know, don't do the shot. But I know that some people are all for it. But I've also heard stories of like doctors not explaining what the shot does to your bones and other wonderful side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I think you, that's the big one is like the effect on bone density, which for women is something that is already affected. affected. And, you know, women, if you're not doing like resistance training or anything like that, like in my opinion, I think you're bringing the timeline to which you could experience some type of bone loss a little bit closer. And yeah, it's it's a serious issue that I I wish doctors would explain more about. Um, and don't get me wrong, I mean I get it. Like birth control, like having something convenient and easy, and for the time in your life, you're like, you know, I was on a call with somebody yesterday, and she's like, I'm finishing my master's, and I'm like super stressed, and you know, I just like can't get pregnant right now, and I really needed to be, I like need to be on something. So she wanted to get the IUD, but then also learn fertility awareness method. Normally, I say that that would not be like you wouldn't be able to appropriately learn fertility awareness method and be on a contraceptive because a contraceptive is going to interfere with that. But for her, it was like it's just everything was overwhelming. And so I, we ended up landing in like a medium place where, where it was okay, got the IUD short term, learn fertility awareness from the perspective of like getting into the habit of it, getting it into your routine making it so that you're, you're adding that in so that when you're ready, potentially in three months, you're like, okay, the ID is not working for me. I'm done school. Like now I want to focus on this. Then you're, you're not being overwhelmed by, oh, I have to like check every time or I have to like get my temperature. Like there's a bit of a learning curve with the method. 
So a lot of like my work is like, I want to set women up for success and I want them to have all the information so that they can make the decision that's right for them at the moment that it's right for them in their life. Does it also affect if you have a non-hormonal IUD? Yeah. So like a copper ID you, you're referring to. Um, so we run into some issues with some nutrients that might be depleted by like long-term copper exposure. Um, and that becomes like an environmental toxicity, um, issue. Um, but it won't affect hormones directly. I think like potentially like the copper overload could interfere from like a different mechanism. From my experience, a lot of women who end up with a copper IUD get a lot of side effects. So side effects such as they have a lot of breakthrough bleeding, they experience a lot of, a lot more pain. Um, so often they end up going off of it because of the side effects. But it wouldn't affect like when they're trying to track their mucus or their ovulation or the basal body temperature or any of that stuff. So um, I would say that there's likely a reaction with the copper and cervical mucus. So I would say that you wouldn't get the most accurate tracking of your mucus from that sense. And then whenever you have anything inserted into the uterus, like you risk there being like some sort of trauma or damage to your actual cervical mucus producing cells. And those are called the cervical crypt cells and they're located in the cervix. So, you know, an IUD is, is traumatic. The body for the first little bit is trying really hard to push it out because it's like there's a foreign object inside of me. I need it out. So I would say there is like level, there is a certain degree of trauma that's happening at the cervix and that could affect your mucus production. So it could be that you're experiencing a lot more mucus because those cells are just kind of think of them like as oozing. So I know that's not the very, not a very like pretty sight, but just to get a visual, you know what I mean by that mm-hmm. could be happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would be like the best contraceptive? And I'm using giant quotation marks. Like I, I mean, this is kind of, I guess a biased answer because I, I teach fertility awareness method, but um, FAM really is an excellent option. I think you are learning about your body as well as birth control. You're being super empowered. You, you literally have full control. I think birth control should be in your control. Like that's why we named it what we did, but I don't think that that's what we, what we're seeing of, of synthetic birth controls or endocrine disruptors or whatever, but fertility awareness method, like it's, you know, 99.6% effective when you use it perfectly. Like that puts us in the same category as like pill, um, which is huge. And I know like a lot of women, like their, their doctors aren't promoting fertility awareness method or they're saying like, oh yeah, that's just like the calendar rhythm method. But as I mentioned earlier, like the issues with that, similar to using an app, like this is not the same thing. And you know, it's unfortunate that this is the conversation that doctors are having with patients because it's just, it's not true. So yeah, I would say fertility awareness method. I I would say uh, invest in learning the method in some way, like you will, you'll not regret it. And it's something that you have for you for the rest of your life. And when you are at various stages of the reproductive life continuum, so whether that's, you know, you are early, you're newly getting your period for the first time and you want to understand your body or you're planning a pregnancy or you're avoiding a pregnancy or you're postpartum, whatever the case may be, um, you'll be, you'll have this method that will always be useful for you. 
And I like how you call it empowering because it really is. I mean, I feel like with birth control, we're kind of losing that power. We're giving it to somebody else, some synthetic chemical that's like, you're going to fix everything for me versus I'm going to take control and I'm going to be in charge of how my body's going to react or what I'm going to do during this point in time. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say, I, I like that you brought up how you can use it at all the stages and like getting to know your body in that way, I think helps you understand all the stages as you go. And I, I know when I see women in like even the menopausal in perimenopause or postmenopausal stage, it's like the, the issues that come up, if, if they're very self-aware and have spent that time understanding their cycles and their bodies, I find those symptoms like that can come up in, in menopause or perimenopause, in perimenopause or like postmenopause um, are not as severe as if they didn't really pay attention to their cycles and, and aren't as familiar with, with how their body works. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, menopause is a very natural and normal transition. And for women to know their bodies and like they'll be able to identify if something is out of balance like very early, likely before they experience the, they experience the very debilitating symptoms. And I mean, what better way to to support your body with what you need ahead of time so that you have a smoother transition through menopause? Mm-hmm. There were two things I wanted to touch upon, and I think uh, one of them was with the whole like contraceptive thing and empowering and the. Um, fertility awareness I think we're focusing a lot on women because obviously this is supposed to be a girl talk but we also like have to put it on the other side like yeah you you may not want to be pregnant but men also contribute to it so like wearing condoms are great and wearing condoms that don't have spermicide are even better for the vagina Uh, the other thing that I wanted to touch upon uh, if you guys want to switch topics for a little bit was like stuff we were talking about during the prep call about period underwear and the cups and tampons and all that stuff yeah um I think you men play a pretty big role when it comes to fertility awareness method with that a couple is choosing to use this as their birth control. Um, so when I do sessions, like I give women the option, like, do you want your partner there or do you not want your partner there? And I find when the partners are there, when they're involved, it become it's such a um, integrated method that they're you're doing to, you really are doing together. And I see this too with fertility, like men want to be involved. They want to get access to women's charts so they can see what's going on. And like you said, yeah, they're 50% of the, of the equation when it comes to having a baby. So what I talk a lot about with my clients is your intentions have to both be aligned. So both of you have to feel you know, very strongly that you do not want to have a baby right now. And I have definitely had clients where they're like, there's a different like disconnect. One partner feels like they want to have more kids and the other one doesn't. And that's going to come through on their behaviors, obviously, and um, how they actually apply the method. So yeah, I'm glad that you brought up that point because I think men definitely play a role when it comes to fertility awareness method and when it comes to your fertility in general. And honestly, I feel like we need to have another episode where you just come in and we talk about, you know, the whole contraceptive thing from both sides of the spectrum and just break it down. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That would be, that'd be great. I don't, uh, I don't like, I don't speak to a ton, a ton of men about it, but I think it's definitely important um, to put it out there to women that, you know, have your partners on board. It's important. Because I've heard of a pill being created 
for men as well. And I'm like, do we really need to pump each other with hormones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great for men because they don't have to like think about it, right? And they don't have to be involved in any way. There's like mm-hmm. absolutely zero onus or responsibility on them, which I think it should be more equal. I agree. So I did look at the period underwear you were mentioning, and they're definitely not the ones that I was thinking about. The ones that I was thinking about were just really made to, you know, make you feel happy and wonderful during the time when you're like, most women feel like crap. And those ones I believe were by Hairbrain Designs, and they're super cute. They're weird and funny. But the ones you were mentioning were kind of like pad substitutes. Yeah, yeah. So Nixwear like makes makes them of, of different absorbencies. So you can get one that's like fullest absorbency. And I they'll tell you on their website how many liters of blood like it'll it'll absorb. For myself personally, I tend to use the Diva Cup on my like heavier days, and then um, I'll use just the period and use like on the lighter days or very light days. And it just gives me peace of mind. And I, they really are effective. Like they, they're fairly snug. So, and there's like a seal in the sense that, um, you know, that underwear fabric that's like non-slip, mm-hmm. like it's like lined with that. And even if you, cause they have different colors and stuff and stuff like that. So even if you got a lighter color, like if you have a beige or light pink or whatever, it's got a black lining. So I find it's just super clean, like easy to wash too. They give you like a little wash bag for it and they're comfortable, right? They're, they don't feel like you're walking around in a diaper, which sometimes like those heavy, heavy pads can feel like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I looked at a couple of them. I think it was uh, Dear Kate, She Thinks, Proof yep. and so on and so forth. Some of them have the pads and I think it's aisles that has the underwear and you can add like a pat in the underwear oh yeah so that you have extra protection and they seem interesting i was really curious i asked a few of my friends like if they ever heard about them a few said that they had heard about them like one of them mentioned that they use that and the um reusable pads but they don't like she loves that she doesn't like get shafting no rubbing it doesn't feel like she's wearing a diaper like you said but she doesn't like that it the odor isn't as hidden as it would be with a regular pad. She does say, though, that like she won't use it during her heavier days and mostly for the lighter days. And my other friend mentioned that when she first got her period, the cup wasn't available. You had to go to a gynecologist and get it shaped to your vagina. And I was like, huh, interesting. Oh, I'm not, I didn't even know that. Do you think maybe she's talking about like a diaphragm or you're certain it was menstrual cup? It was a menstrual cup. I asked her, I was like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, that's what it was like when I first got my period. I was like, well, I I don't know. I'm curious how long ago that was. Me too. Mm -hmm, Same. But even then I saw like some of the new cups and I was like, wow, these are so different from like the regular Diva Cup because that's the one I use. But there are some that are, they're just really weird and the prices keep going up for some of those. I'm like, "They're, they're reusable. Can you not lower the price just a teeny bit? I think like they're all made so different because everybody, like every body is different. So one might work for you and one might not. And I think cost wise, you know, if you were to divide that out, you're probably still saving quite a bit compared to like using pads or tampons and you're doing something better for the environment at the end of the day too. So yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Even like the underwears we talked about, right? Like they're I definitely never thought I would spend thirty dollars on a on a pair of underwear, but then when you get them, you're like, oh, they were so worth it. Like I would I would do this again. Yeah, and I've seen some that definitely are very beautiful. I love them, and I'm like debating. I'm like, I should probably buy one. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I was looking at the um at the cost, like you said, and like yeah, let's just go with the Diva Cup. It's around forty bucks total with tax and everything versus pack at Walmart of twenty eight pads, which is around ten bucks. You still have to go through like what maybe a pack every two months. I don't remember how many I used to go through, but like you do the cost and you spend almost like twice as much on just like pads in a year than you would with just the diva cup mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah definitely i would say more cost effective and we mentioned like the diva cup doesn't seem to have any side effects as, as far as i know anyways versus like uh tampons like that. so i think like you know there's ov- always the concern if you have an allergy of some sort and women who have potentially like a disturbance in their vaginal microflora of some kind. So if you, you know, have BV or you have recurrent infection of some sort, like I know using the menstrual cup, like, and constantly putting your fingers in and out, like it could make that more of a, it could cloud the picture there and make it a little bit more uncomfortable. So I have heard women who experience BV find that they can't use the cup during their period for that reason. But then like with tampons, we have, well, the toxic shock syndrome and also the whole misconception about using the diva cup or a tampon being, you know, only for women who are sexually active or married women because, you know, you lose your virginity. Yeah, yeah. Like like all the stigma around that. Yep. Mm-hmm. I definitely try and limit like the interactions or conversations I have about that as best mm-hmm. I can. But of course it's yeah, it's it's the same experience that I get with fertility awareness. Like um, some moms particularly, they'd be like, oh, I don't really want to teach my daughter that because then if she knows about it, she might, it might make her be sexually active earlier than I want her to be. And, and I just, I'm scratching my head and I say, oh, well, actually it's the opposite. Like you want her to have the information so she is more empowered. So she is having sex safely. Is that like more the issue? So I do run into this conversation with moms who have adolescent daughters who have just started getting their period. And honestly, um, props to you for dealing with that because even when a couple of my friends mentioned that, I'm just like, uh, <laughs> I got to keep quiet. No, but. Mm. Oh, yeah. You got to talk about the conversations that make people uncomfortable. That's where all the fun is. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. So true. You mentioned BV a couple times. Uh, do you want to just briefly explain what that is for anyone who might not know? Yeah, BP stands for bacterial vaginosis, and it is a condition where you've got a disturbance of the bacteria within your vaginal microbiome. And there can be many triggers for this. This could be a trigger, like you could have a disbalance in the pH uh, there. You could have, you know, there are food triggers for sure that can play a role. There's hormonal triggers that can play a role. Women will usually experience symptoms like you know, they might be itchy. They might have excessive discharge. There is usually a sour odor to it as well. Yeah. So it's just, so going back to like the gut health, like this is essentially like the microbiome is the vaginal health and it's the environment, the bacteria environment there. So why the vagina is so like, it's, is self-cleansing is because it, it does have like a good amount of like, you know, we call it the good bacteria, which will help to recycle and, and slough off cells and just keep an optimal environment there. Whereas if you have BV, you have a disturbance there. There's quite a bit that can be done. I know I've worked with women who have this in my practice, but it's very uncomfortable. 
And women that have it, they're usually, it's, it's an ongoing battle and they have to try various treatments and therapies until they find something that works for them. I've seen this at the health food shops. They're like probiotics that you can pop into your vaginal. Do you approve of those or do you disapprove? Yeah, yeah. No, those are a great option, like suppositories, probiotic suppositories. Yeah, a great option and I uh, use them quite a bit for any vaginal um, infection really, like candida, a good option. Probably for BV, the best like suppository would be something that's with boric acid. And that's because it helps to stabilize the pH. Um, I found that to be quite a successful treatment when it comes to working with BV. Are there any other like herbs and foods that can help balance like hormonal disturbance or BV? Well, sugar really feeds all kinds of, all kinds of bad things in the body. So um, definitely when it comes to various pathogens, like, you know, the big one is candida, like sugar feeds candida and candida, candida affects everything, right? It, yes, it, it has does. Symptoms. Yeah. It can make women tired. It can make women have discharge. It can make women have like rashes. Like it literally can, I would say it's probably like nonspecific in that you get a lot of symptoms you might not think are related to candida, but in fact, that they, they are. So I would say from a diet perspective, sugar is probably the one food that you want to avoid. And it's like all types of sugar, right? Like, you know, we can get sugar from, from glucose, which is, well, glucose is a type of sugar, which you get from grains and breads and pastas and stuff like that. And then you have like fruit sugars, fructose, which, you know, you, you want to keep everything in a bit of a balance, but refined sugars are definitely ones too eliminate as the best as you can. And obviously like fast food and junk food with all the like random fats and salts and artificial flavorings don't do you any good anyways. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think like we, we want to try our best to stick to a whole foods diet, um, eat as many like clean vegetables and fruits as possible, um, clean meats as well. Nothing that's super inflammatory. Yeah, exactly. And and I was going to say that like you're one of the most pro-inflammatory when we're talking about hormones, really it's actually dairy and mm-hmm. that's your casein protein or your whey. So it's not just lactose. I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have that much dairy. I drink like lactose-free milk. Well, your lactose-free milk still contains casein protein. And they're like, oh, yeah, and I have cheese every now and then and like yogurt. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's still eating dairy. So getting a full understanding of what actually, what are the dairy proteins? What are you, where are they coming up in your, um, in your diet? And then making a conscious effort to keep them out. And it's funny because even people who are transitioning from like, quote unquote, regular diet to more of a vegan diet, they're like, dairy is the hardest thing for me to give up. I'm like, I know. Mm-hmm. They're very like- addictive. <laughs> I do want to say something about like the vegan diet because um, sometimes we can, it can cause some menstrual cycle irregularities. So in school, I remember learning that it's, it's kind of considered a red flag when a woman chooses to go vegan because if she's not supplementing or having the right amount of like complete proteins, like it could affect her menstrual cycles. So it is one thing if you're, I mean, I'm not anti-vegan or vegetarianism, but I, I do think that women need to look at their cycles and kind of see, um, did this diet change make things shift in my cycles and what did it look like? I'm definitely a big fan of like plant-based and adding that in, but I do think like we really need to, like, as women, we, we need a certain amount of animal protein. For sure. It's easier to absorb iron from animal sources than from vegetable sources. Mm-hmm. 
tending that, and, are, that our gut's in good health because yeah, iron, exactly. yeah, like I have seen like women who adopt a more anti-inflammatory diet, all of a sudden their iron goes up and they weren't even eating iron, uh, like taking an iron supplement. And it's because you're absorbing it better from your food. Mm-hmm. I've seen people who take the iron supplements and I'm like, oh, why are you doing that? Yeah. Like it doesn't make any, it doesn't shift, like make any changes yeah. you mean? Yeah. It doesn't do any changes and it just irritates your gut. Yeah. Like form of iron is really important. And I think they're not all created the same. Um, and some of them can be, yeah, like you said, very irritating for the gut. But one of the supplements I like to use when women are really, really struggling is um, St. Francis uh, Vitex combo. Mm-hmm. It's really just like chase tree. And I think it kind of like helps people kind of balance things out. I know it's used mostly for menopause, but like for people who are really, really struggling, even during like regular menstruation, when they're super stressed, it kind of helps balance things out as you teach them. Like you're saying the, the whole fertility awareness and helping them rebalance themselves, rebalance their gut system. It gives them kind of like a peace of mind that, you know, everything's going to be okay. I just need to change my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Vitex or Tree is a fantastic supplement. And, and I would say I use it. Um, I use it a lot for women coming off birth control to help like reset and reestablish their cycles because one of the mechanism of actions for Vitex is that it helps at the level of the pituitary. So at the brain to help reconnect those hormonal patterns and connections. And indirectly, it does help to increase progesterone levels from that, from that sense. Um, so yeah, it's a great one. And for menopause, like the craziest, like the craziest thing is that the most influential uh, symptom improvement from that has been sleep. So like menopausal women who have insomnia, like Vitex is a very, very effective therapy for them, which like, I didn't know that until I started prescribing it more for menopause. But I would say generally, like I, I use Vitex quite a bit and there are certain conditions where it needs to be approached with caution because we don't want to be stimulating too much hormonal patterns if there's already an, a disbalance. So there are certain conditions like, you know, PCOS, I'm not usually using Vitex for. So yeah. So speak to a provider, of course, when you're thinking mm-hmm. about starting a herb because it maybe in theory might be right for you, but in reality it might not be. Yeah, for sure. But I like it. And like, in other words, uh, taking it, it's kind of like when you um, hit that button on your Wi-Fi and you're like, okay, time to reset. So everything can connect a little bit better. There's that communication between, like you said, the pituitary and the rest of the organs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And then I find sometimes like you have to, you know, for some women in like three months might be enough time, but for others, like they might need to be on it a bit longer. I've definitely like seen good correlations with Vitex and a woman's charts and getting back to baseline after birth control use, which is, you know, obviously like what every woman coming off birth control is trying to achieve is to help those cycles get back to regular. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I have two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're more along the lines of myths. And one of them, I'm not hundred percent sure because my friends said it was Chinese medicine and both of you guys are more informed about this than I am. One was water, like drinking too much water or drinking too little water is both good and bad for your period. And like swimming, you shouldn't go swimming when you're on your period. And the last one was like more Chinese medicine wise was like, you can't have watermelon, cold foods, or like foods that are high in water when you're on your period. 
Yeah, I think that goes back to the individual circumstance, right? So I'm thinking if somebody like is in that water retention category where they have a lot of excess fluid, like obviously water is going to make that worse. And then in terms of cold foods, cold, like cold foods are very irritating for the gut. They help, like they don't help with like, like you're, you're experiencing blood loss when you have your period. So you want to be filling the body with like warming foods because you're losing blood. So you're tending to run a bit cold. So if you're in consuming cold foods, you're making that part worse versus if you have like warm foods, you're helping to warm your body back up. Um, but Felicia, I know you do a lot of Chinese medicine. So if you wanted to elaborate on this, please do. Yeah, it's, it's kind of basically what you're saying in Chinese medicine terms, cold stagnates the blood. And because you're in a phase where you're bleeding, um, having cold would, would in theory lead to more cramping and, and pain because you're kind of not letting that energy flow. So that's why a lot of people when they have their period will find it really helpful to have like a heat pad over their abdomen or drinking hot fluids. And that's just the kind of Chinese medicine explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Chinese medicine is a whole language in itself that sometimes I find when I explain it to patients, it's hard to for me to put it in words that make sense. This is kind of a whole new, it's a whole other system of medicine. It's just great though. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Usually the Chinese medicine explanations can be super long-winded and I'm usually faced with lots of confused faces. I mean, it is something that's super foreign to most of us, right? It creates intrigue, though, which I which I really like. Like, mm-hmm. so I work with a lot of women who are trying to get pregnant, and you know, we'll be doing acupuncture, and I'll reach down and like feel her toes, and they're complete icicles. And there's a saying in Chinese medicine that's like "cold feet, cold womb." And it's because like the channel that moves and directs blood and chi throughout the body like starts at your feet. So if your feet are cold, you're constantly letting in that cold, like Felicia said, you're stagnating blood, you're affecting blood flow that's allowing to go to the uterus where you need it. So I'm always like heat lamp on their toes. I'm like, invest in some fancy fluffy slippers or some wool socks, like keep those toes nice and warm. And like people appreciate it. They're like, okay, this is like a theory that no one's talked to them about. No one's explained. And they'll be like, oh, you know what? I do notice that I like have really cold feet and it's really uncomfortable or like I'm walking on the tile and I don't like it. So it does create some intrigue and people for the most part are curious to know more, which I definitely appreciate. Mm-hmm. And really, like, I feel like grandmothers since the beginning of time have been saying, don't get your feet cold, wear socks. It's true. So it's there's there's got to be some merit to it. True, true. My dad's always like, you know, keep your feet warm and you're going to stay healthy. Yeah, see? So, yeah, there's lots of – I think that that theory has trickled into lots of cultures, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like we covered – quite a bit today and it was really good and I always learn so much every time we do these I know it's like so amazing because you know you expect women to kind of know these sort of things but when you really get down to it there's a lot of information none of us really know unless you specialize it's true Mm -hmm. so I'm super grateful that you know Felicia brought you along for this I'm super happy to have learned and I I, I just want to do so much more research. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I I think I did my job in that I created intrigue and made someone want to 
take that next step in empowering their health and their knowledge about their menstrual cycles, which makes me really happy. Like I said, I'm definitely going to start checking things out next for uh, 2021. <laughs> we can all hope it's going to be a better year. Of course, it will be. Okay. I like that. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in, Tanette. For our listeners who don't know, Antoinette is actually my cousin and was part of my inspiration to going into natu- naturopathic medicine in the first place. So I'm really glad that we got to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always it's nice to have another naturopath in the family. So our our uh our family festivities aren't just me dealing with all the random questions about about health because everyone always has the has tons of them. Yep, it's true. It's true. Yes, it's nice to to tag team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys are lucky in that department. <laughs> in your family, it's just you. Yes, here and when I go back home to Mexico, in my like my mom's side of the family, which is just you know her siblings. There's nobody really that's into medicine. There's other like cousins and aunts from other sides that are, but it's not the same. We tend to have mixed views. The other cousin that I have that, although she's a traditional doctor, she is more open to holistic and alternative medicine. So she's like, I see where you're coming from, but and I'm like, I know we're going to have a nice discussion. Let me bring the wine. <laughs> okay. uh, amazing well yeah thanks so much internet and we'll be back two weeks you can rate comment and follow us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from invite your friends to join our community and improve their health you can follow us on our social media felicia senza nd and sweet nutritionista and dr Antoinette falco we will be posting bi-weekly thank you for joining us happy holidays and happy healing